I love that we applaud. But I was lucky enough to hear Ravi Shankar um, play. He was given an honorary degree when I got my MFA, and he had been teaching all week. So this is, uh, to put in context our applause, that it's what we culturally know to do to say thank you very much. But Ravi's students who'd been working with him all week, and I've always wondered if this is the classical response to beautiful sitar playing, um, they literally would sigh at some moment, and they were on the edges of their seat, and they'd kind of go, oh! And so it would be like when Chris... Um, modulated our hymn up to another chord if we had all gone, ah, yes, because that was surprising and exciting. (laughs) And I keep thinking the the image of these students kind of all wiggling in anticipation and ooing and aahing at every moment. It was like that fast motion video of um, a vine growing towards the sun. So I hope in our applause, what you hear is, oh, oh." (laughs) that was beautiful. It only takes one word these days to clue us into someone's moral values. One, one single word, wingnut, (laughs) wall. Snowflake, redneck. We've become increasingly divided and polarized. Hey, now there's a new thought. It's almost impossible to have a conversation and use neutral language. The simplest things are loaded with dripping with latent meaning left, right, fox, her, 45. It's a challenge to start or keep a conversation open. I I want to better understand how my own use of language falls in these conversations. I've been thinking about words since I got feedback from a sermon last month. And one word, one word, caused several members to stop listening. It triggered a fierce reaction for them. It was a racial slur. I used as a comparison. And it's a word I never use in my daily life, and I hoped it had enough context. But it was one word. The rich and loving set of conversation from that Sunday sent me back to the basics of Buddhism. That tradition has the clearest teachings on language of any religious guidelines I know. Right speech is part of the Noble Eightfold Path. That list of eight practices are an early attribution to the Buddha's instructions. And with its wonderful optimism, it declares that suffering can be eliminated. So Buddhism hands out a simple prescription keep doing these right eight things. Ha! Simple in form, yet very, very challenging to follow and live. So the one, right speech, along with right action and right livelihood, 
form a solid foundation for ethical conduct. Buddhism is so practical. What you say, what you do, and how you earn your keep are rules for how to live a life short on suffering. With right speech, action, and livelihood, we improve the quality of our life. We minimize harming others. Guilt and regret subside. Others trust us more and are attracted to us. Win, 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 win. Back to right speech and how we use words. How do we choose the right word or combination of words? Especially now, you never know when you've stepped on a word landmine. Mark Twain comments on his craft of writing this way. The difference between the almost right word and the right word is really a large matter. Tis the difference between the lightning bug and the lightning. The lightning bug and the lightning. His analogy applies to any utterance. So I used lightning the other Sunday and some reported getting scorched. I do expect to heat you up from time to time, but not produce one billion deadly bolts. So how can I, how can we make sure our words, whether spoken, texted, slapped up on social media, or carefully handwritten, edited, rewritten in a letter, fit through this ethical filter of right speech. I have two insights. One comes from commentary on the Buddhist writings, teachings, and the other comes from research by social psychologists, the folks studying how we form our moral and ethical foundation. So let's wrap up with the Buddhist perspective first. To consider whether what we're about to say or write, whether it fits into right speech, we have to consider four destructive forms of communication. Some will sound pretty obvious. Is what I'm about to say, is it lying? Is it divisive? Is it harsh? Is it idle talk? The world would be drained of a majority of our words and filled with a deep silence if we put all these four standards to use. Lying is fairly obvious, except the teachings include gestures like shrugs and nods, winks. And it includes the lies of omission. And like all Buddhist instruction, it avoids being rigid, telling the truth in very specific moments can cause great harm unnecessarily. You don't need to tell me the truth 
about how I'm looking this morning. And I'll show you the same compassion. (laughs) After lying, the next criteria in right speech asks whether our words are divisive. This potent question from several millennia ago beautifully, beautifully applies to our complex tribal identities and political markers of today. Simple words have grown politicized and divisive. Black, blue, all. Peacekeeping, illegal, undocumented. I notice on all sides of media how many terms are coded, hence meant to be dismissive. They're designed to be divisive. Increasingly, I feel this hurricane of words swirling and racing by me, all, no matter the side, designed to be a shorthand for political stances. Say a few sentences of hello, and I know your political and social values. A headline immediately announces the intended audience of the story. Our beautiful choir sang as an anthem, Love Has Broken Down the Wall, a few Sundays back, by Mark Miller. And in our current political climate, is this metaphor of tearing down a wall with love now political commentary? I know my Joseph. (laughs) So lying, divisive, the third right speech precept covers harsh words. These words hurt others by insulting, being abusive, sarcastic, causing ridicule. Again, how we communicate goes beyond literal language. For example, when we say something with a smile or add a little smiley face to a text, innocently pretending what we've said won't hurt another. I was telling the truth. They needed to hear that. The last part of right speech is idle talk. And that really is about the force behind what your intent is in speaking. Talking about the weather may seem like idle or trivial talk, but if the intent is to make a connection with someone, to treat a grocery clerk as a fellow human being, then the talk isn't idle. If it's gossip, talk about others, might be pretty idle. Is it meant to elevate your own self-worth? You know, much of social media is idle talk. So those are the four elements of right speech. But let's go back to the divisive part to look at that a little more closely because we are so indeed in this polarized time. I feel it. I know you feel it. And various studies confirm we're not just imagining this separation. In the last 15 years, there's been a decline a significant statistical decline in the number of people calling themselves centrists. 
or moderates, and a rise in the number of conservatives and liberals. There are others in there. We're scattering away from the middle, moving out to the extremes. So as a religious people committed to creating community while embracing diversity, we have an important stake and role in bridging this growing divide. And I question if we're being effective. Or are we standing off to one progressive liberal side and waving our hands saying, hey, come over here, come on, come over here. We talk about listening carefully to each other. We support seeking out alternative viewpoints and cultures and worldviews. But I'm looking for insight into the foundation of our differences, our disgust and rejection of the other side with name-calling and assuming they're simply stupid or uncaring. I think that's intellectually and spiritually sloppy. The extremity of our stances is baffling. So I have found some helpful answers with the work of social psychologists. Let's bring in their theories on moral foundations. In particular, I've been watching Jonathan Haidt, pronounced Haidt, but spelled H-A-I-D-T, Jonathan Haidt. He has a bunch of TED Talks, and I've been reading his book, The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. He and a group of colleagues use research-based methods for improving political civility. They want to foster mutual understanding. They're seeking ways to reduce our tendency to demonize political opponents and now demonize our neighbors. Haidt and colleagues discovered we share six innate moral foundations, six moral categories. And I have a cheat sheet for you. These six, and that's okay. Um, these six, they've discovered doing uh, cross-cultural studies uh, are not bound up by culture. They, they vary by culture, but each culture includes all six. And how he talks about them are as... Um, as the extremes within a spectrum. So on one end, for example, is caring for others or harm of others, whether you care about how others are doing or care whether they're being harmed. So that's one, care, harm. The other is fairness or equality and cheating. I think about our poverty simulation and when we were with our backs up against the wall, cheating as a value kind of went by the wayside, or not cheating, excuse me. Liberty, oppression, loyalty, betrayal, authority, subversion, sanctity, purity, and degradation or disgust. So here's what's interesting. 
Where we stand on our various political and social divides depends on which of these six we most value. So to some degree, we all value them all. But which of the six you value the most highly determines your moral matrix. There's often one or two values you might consider most sacred. And before I go on, I want to note that we all get sucked into moral, tribal communities. We circle around these sacred values and then share post hoc arguments about why they're so right and they are so wrong. We think the other side is blind to truth, reason, science, and common sense. But in fact, everyone goes blind when talking about their own sacred values. So many here at Hope claim the liberal label. I'll talk to those who consider themselves liberal first. And the grand narrative of a liberal, a grand understanding of history, might go like this. Once upon a time, the vast majority of human persons suffered in societies and social institutions that were unjust, unhealthy, repressive, and oppressive. These traditional societies were reprehensible because of their deep-rooted inequality, exploitation, and irrational traditionalism. But the noble human aspiration for autonomy, equality, and prosperity struggled mightily against the forces of misery and oppression, and eventually succeeded in establishing modern, liberal, democratic, capitalist welfare societies. There is much work still to be done to dismantle the powerful vestiges of inequality, the struggle for the good society in which individuals are equal and free to pursue their self-defined happiness is the one mission truly worth dedicating one's life to achieving. Does that fit? This depiction of history takes its moral force from that care-harm category. It shows deep concern for the suffering of others, suffering of victims. It celebrates liberty as freedom from oppression. And it includes the freedom to pursue self-defined happiness. Does this sound a lot like our church? Our Unitarian story is a parallel one. We talk of releasing humans from the bondage of oppressive religions, from the primitive idea of God. We elevate ourselves to pinnacles of personal explorations, religious and spiritual thought. We seek to be free of anything, anything unscientific or irrational. We value this liberal narrative. So the main ideas in the liberal moral matrix, you'll see the one with little lines drawn to it. Those two thicker lines in the liberal matrix are deep compassion, concern for suffering, and then freedom and liberation. 
often freedom, liberation from oppression. As Hyde explains, liberals consider these two moral pillars, care and liberty, far and above the other four. Which means liberals are less concerned with loyalty, authority, and sanctity. They don't ignore them. They, we, I, I. It's not that we don't believe in loyalty or authority or sanctity, but caring for others, seeing someone suffering, knowing that someone's suffering, fixing oppression, trumps everything else. There is that word. So now let's look at the conservative grand narrative. See if it fits you better. Once upon a time, America was a shining beacon. Then liberals came along and erected an enormous federal bureaucracy that handcuffed the invisible hand of the free market. They subverted our traditional American values and opposed God and faith at every step of the way. Instead of requiring that people work for a living, they siphoned money from hardworking Americans and gave it to Cadillac driving, this is dated, Cadillac driving drug addicts and welfare queens. Instead of punishing criminals, they tried to understand them. Instead of worrying about the victims of crime, they worried about the rights of criminals. Instead of adhering to traditional American values of family, fidelity, and personal responsibility, they preached promiscuity, premarital sex, and the gay lifestyle. And they encouraged a feminist agenda that undermined traditional family roles. Instead of projecting strength, to those who would do evil around the world, they cut military budgets. Disrespecting our soldiers in uniform burned our flag and chose negotiation and multilateralism. A cleaner narrative from the Reagan era, but um, I didn't take time to re-update it. But it is a heroic narrative that still plays out today. I hear it in, in many. And it values loyalty. It values authority. And it values sanctity, purity. And here's where I appreciate Height. He calls those three moral foundations the binding, binding foundations. Without those three virtues, without loyalty, authority, and sanctity, our communities would fall apart. Care and liberty matter, but aren't priorities. So conservatives fight ferociously when change threatens institutions and traditions. This is behind that fear of the loss of family and marriage traditions. Our complicated human moral psychology co-evolved with religions and other cultural inventions, such as marriage, such as tribes, 
such as agriculture, to get us where we are today. We can't dismiss it. We need groups. We need leaders. We need sacred purpose. And we develop our virtues in groups. If you destroy all groups and dissolve all the internal structures and you destroy all the boundaries that create that group, then what you've destroyed is a sense of belonging and community. And maybe you've destroyed a way to take care of those who are needy. or who need their freedoms protected. In fact, one marker of a conservative is, and you'll notice in the um, chart, that the bars for the conservative to all six are all even. So for a conservative, there's an even distribution in all six areas. Social conservatives tend to have the broadest set of social concerns. Yes. Freedom and compassion matter, but so do loyalty, authority, and sanctity. You know, all here who pledged hard, hard hard-earned dollars to support Hope Church next year, your support is partly an expression of loyalty. You want this church to continue, so you value loyalty. Is that a conservative, yes, institutionalist kind of action. The immigration debate isn't just about cruelty, but asking how much will our country continue to change. So behind the fear, it's not just a debate about care versus harm, but loyalty to a culture and an idea versus what feels like a betrayal. So when care and liberty, now this is interesting, when care and liberties aren't aren't elevated to prominence, liberals, I'll own this one, can't hear any of the other four positive moral values. We can't hear the arguments. In fact, if you ask a liberal, well, no, if you ask a conservative, just for the moment, pretend you're liberal and answer these questions as if you're a liberal, Conservatives can do it in a heartbeat. It's easy for them to step into what that means to be compassionate and caring and worry about liberty and oppression. If you ask a liberal to step into a conservative's set of shoes and answer the same questions as if a conservative, liberals can't do it. Well, that's brutal. Because we actively, liberals actively reject conservative concerns. They sound immoral. We think loyalty to a group shrinks the moral circle and becomes the basis of racism and exclusion and authority. Authority is oppression. Sanctity is religious mumbo-jumbo whose only function is to suppress female sexuality and justify homophobia. So Hyatt's work belongs in this sermon because he gives us concrete ways to listen differently. He helps us, no matter your moral matrix, to consider the different morals embedded in someone else's ethical system and culture. 
his ideas provide more refinement to right speech. Back to right speech. Hold on. So the matrix helps point out when one side, both of those matrices, help us point out when one side is dismissive of the values, the valid moral values of a different perspective. So when you or someone else uses dismissive speech, coded rather than neutral, it breaks the precepts of right speech. Look closely at that breach. Look for the hidden moral matrix that's different from your own. Me, I now think long and hard before I use certain words. Alpha, pantsuit, whiner, nasty, loon, beta. Let's all notice with more clarity what the words around us say about values or what they omit. Remember, everyone goes blind when talking about their sacred values. May we better spot all manipulation and efforts to draw us over to a certain side while pushing away the other. May we begin to name the moral pillars in all viewpoints. May it be so.